So yeah, so we're here four weeks in. This is it. We've been talking about the amazing race. We hung these flags and on Wednesday nights, we've been doing games that had to do with uh, with the world and watching videos of missionaries around the world. But we've really been focused on the journey that is our spiritual life. There's a pastor named Stuart Briscoe and he is a fairly famous pastor. I don't know if you know him. You might, if you're from the Dallas area, if you've been in Dallas area, you might know his son. His son's name is Pete Briscoe. um, And he's at Bent Tree Bible Church up in the Metroplex. Both of them, fabulous communicators. If you're ever looking for somebody to podcast or something like that. Stuart Briscoe tells this story about when he was uh, raising his kids. His kids are are grown now and out of the house. But he said, I I wanted to give my kids this love for running. And so we would go out as a family and as they were young, we would would run. And as they got older, he said the the switch kind of flipped and it started being the kids that would go knock on the door in the morning, go, dad, we're gonna go running this morning, right? Get up and and let's go. He said, several years in, of these raising kids, his daughter came to him and said, dad, as a family, could we run this 10K that's in town? Um, And he said, I I suppose he wasn't really that interested in it, but since the family wanted to do it, we'll do it, we'll do the 10K. So got up, brisk, cold morning, he was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and they go out as a family, there's 25,000 people that have gathered for this 10K city race. And he said, as you can imagine, and something like that, there were people that, this is just a, a sample picture, but there were, were people, there was a guy dressed up like grapes. There was a guy in a banana costume. He said it was Milwaukee. So, you know, there, there was a couple guys in, in beer bottle costumes. And he said, it was like the, the pre-race was a party. I mean, everybody's having a good time and everybody's excited and they're lining up and getting numbers. The gun goes off and everybody's cheering and, and they take off 25,000 people. He said about a, a quarter of a mile, down the road, um, the, the, the beer bottle and the grape were hanging over uh, a, a rail on the side. They, they were already done. They had done as much as they could. He said about a mile down into the run, the chit-chatting, the talking that people were, were having was, was starting to fade out. He said about two miles into the run, all you really heard was just labored breathing of people kind of around you that are, are pushing forward. So you get to the four-mile mark, you could hear birds chirping and there was no one, you know, no one around. And he said, when you get to the 6.2 miles, as people would come across the finish line, there was no longer 25,000 people cheering and excited running together. There were people straggling one at a time as they crossed the finish line, worn out, tired, but they had finished the race. I thought, man, that is a great example. This, this idea of the long run, a great example of, of what, life is like, and not just life, but our spiritual journey as we, as we move through our life and we're headed towards the finish line. Four weeks ago when we started this series, we, we looked at the finish line and we looked at heaven and we said, knowing where we're going, knowing that, that God has a place for us, that, that Jesus said, in my father's house, there are a lot of rooms. I'm going to prepare one for you. I'm going to come back and get you. Knowing where you're going makes all the difference. It changes how we run. It changes how we do life. Then we said that it was very important as, we, as we're in this race, in the spiritual journey, in the life journey, to have a race partner. Not just friends, but someone who, who is alongside of us that understands what the journey is like. They understand how the course is marked out. They can cheer us on. They can pick us up when we stumble. And then last week, Marshall shared with us, and he talked about persevering. He talked about dropping baggage and, and being ready to, uh, to push through some of the hard times. Hey, Gary, do you mind, or Carrie's there, closing that door, thanks. 
And so this morning, we kind of wrap all those things up and we close out this race and we're gonna look at what the Apostle Paul says about this. But kind of our bottom line for the week we wanna communicate to our kids and really spend some time thinking about is this. In this race, we've gotta run. We've gotta run like we mean it. We've gotta run like it matters. We have to run like the end, like the finish line has eternity at stake for us. Not just jogging along the way, not just haphazardly training, but running like we mean it. And, and in a race, in a long race, and again, the analogy sticks to life, there are, there are some things that kind of pop up along the way that, that keep us from finishing strong. And we could talk about a bunch, like, I mean, we could spend the rest of the day talking about obstacles that keep us from finishing strong. But let me just give you some to think about. One is weariness. At some point along the race, that's what happened in Stuart Briscoe's story. At some point along the way, weariness begins to sit in, set in on the people who are running. Now, I've never run a 10K. I've never run a 5K. Closest I run is to the refrigerator. I don't do that. Amanda, my wife, runs. She got up this morning, runs. My in-laws are in town because we're going to be baptizing Rayleigh, my oldest daughter, at the 11 o'clock service. And so family came in. And, and uh, last night they were talking, my mother-in-law, my sister-in-law, and Amanda, they, are we going to get up and, and run? And they all said yes, and they were figuring out what they were going to do. And um, I got up and walked out into the kitchen, and I'd, I'd heard the door close. I heard them leave. And my mother-in-law was sitting at the kitchen table, and she was drinking coffee. I said, did you decide not to run? And she looked at me like I was stupid when it's 36 degrees outside, you know? I said, I know. I never even considered it, though. I mean, you were considering it. And, uh, I mean, they get up and do that. And so, Amanda, I was even asking her, as a runner, as somebody who's run a half marathon before, which just blows my mind, I get tired thinking about 13 miles of, of running. I get tired on my way to work driving, and it's like five miles. I was asking her about it. She said, oh, yeah, weariness, it sets in. You start to feel the pavement underneath your feet. Your legs start to hurt. Your feet start to hurt. And she said, the crazy thing is you don't know when it's coming. She said, at one moment, you're running like, hey, everything's fine. And all of a sudden, the wall is there. She said, you can feel it in your joints. And isn't that true for life? We don't know when the, that weariness is gonna set in. And I mean, even from a spiritual perspective, you know, we're fired up and God has this plan for us and we have this spiritual high. And then somewhere along the way, as we're, as we're, as we're tracking and as we're trying to raise kids and, and trying to be the spiritual leaders for our kids, boy, the world just starts to get heavy and we start to have weariness set in. Some companies like Google and HubSpot look at it from a corporate perspective because they realize that not just in the course of life, but in the course of a week, some of their employees come in and they sense weariness because the heaviness of home and work and all the things that are doing begin to press down. And so what some of these tech companies have done is they've set up some napping rooms and things like that. HubSpot is one. Google's been famous for it. This is actually a picture. I don't know, it's, it's, it's real dim. I couldn't find a good one because the lights inside the room are low. So when they took the picture, there's not a lot of light in the room. But HubSpot, this is a room inside their uh, building. They've got a, a hammock that's raised. Thanks, Marshall. They've got some plush carpeting clouds. And, and you, as, as an employee, you can book the nap room like you do a conference room and go in in the middle of the day and, and rest. And now some of us, we're in, in corporate environments or cultural environments where we go, that would never, my boss would never allow that. You know, there, there's no way that I could just take a nap because my boss would say, oh, you're lazy, you're not working hard. But here's what science has told us. A study in 2008 says that taking a 20 minute nap during the middle of the day is better for you. It makes you more 
fills you with energy. It, it makes your mind sharper than grabbing the thing of caffeine that so many of us would reach for when we feel that extra boost. And so some of these companies come in and said, hey, then we will lean into that. And they've got guys working long hours. And so they say, hey, at some point during the day, if you want to book it and go rest for a second, go do that. Now, if the corporate world understands that, if Google gets that weariness sets in in the course of a week, we would be foolish not to think that somewhere along the way in our journey, in the race, we're not going to sense that. We're not going to, to kind of get to the point where we go, man, I just don't know if I can go for it. Here's what it sounds like from a teenage perspective. Now, and they, your teenager may not have said this to you because there are many teenagers afraid of what your response would be. But a teenager who is, who is plugged into a church, into a youth ministry that's growing spiritually, this is how it's, weariness has been said to me. I'm just tired of being good. Just tired of being good. It's hard work. And the race is hard. Weariness sets in and we have to be aware of that. One of the other obstacles that keeps us from finishing strong is the temptation to take shortcuts. When I was, a, oh, I guess I was seventh or eighth grade. Yeah, we, we were living in Germany. And in those days, of course, you guys grew up this way too. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago. We didn't have, right, all the options that students have in school now. You know, we got, you know, they get like all kinds of, of creative classes they can take that are interesting. And we got like, you get to choose, you know, art or music. You know, that was your two options. And, and, and like, I know they have like wrestling and we, we had PE. That was it. You know, in, in junior high, that was all you took in Germany. You took PE. Well, every Wednesday in PE, we dreaded Wednesday because on Wednesday we had to run the, the base, the army base. And so the school that we, we would leave from the school and head to the outskirts of the base and we had to run around the, the entire base and it took the hour of PE and then you came in and you were done. Well, inevitably you get 30, 40 junior hires out there for PE and they've got to run the base. And we had coaches who were not going to run the base, you know, uh, run around. And so you had students who would start thinking about and talking, you know, how do, we, how do we take the shortcut? But we also knew that even though the coaches wouldn't run the base, that they would be most of the time out somewhere along the way, counting people as they came through, kind of a checkpoint to make sure. And so it became this like game almost, because if you got caught shortcutting, then you had to run on Thursday. So it became this game of how much of a shortcut can I take without being caught by the coaches? Could I get away with it? Could I take the shortcut? And that happens, that happens to us in our journey. We have the temptation to take shortcuts. Let me give you some examples. God has, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit's inside you, you have gifts. You have talents that God's given you, and he's given to you, them to you for kingdom purposes. He's given to you uh, to make a difference in, the, in, in eternity. God has called you, and he's called me to ministry. Now, for me, my ministry just happened to fall into the world of, of occupational ministry. But a lot of church folk, and, and not so much here at First Baptist, I don't think, but uh, certainly around there, a lot of, of church people, believers, they, they think this, ministry is what the, the paid clergy do. Uh, that, that's why we have staff. And I've even heard people say, they'll look at our church and they'll go, well, you don't have a whole lot of staff for your church because they've come from situations and, and systems where the more ministry you did, the more paid people you went. But here's the truth. God has given you gifts and talents. He's given you a passion for something. You may not even discover what that is yet because you might not have to spend a lot of time thinking about it. But God has given you something in this call to a ministry, most likely not vocational, 
most likely from a volunteer standpoint. He's called you to do ministry. And if you haven't discovered what that is or you're not doing it, that's a shortcut. It's a shortcut in the race. It's a shortcut in the journey. Part of the journey is engaging with God, is doing, bringing the kingdom of God here. And if we're not engaged with God to bring the kingdom of God here, we've taken a shortcut. Some of us have relationships. Somebody might even come into your mind when I say this. And if they do, that is probably the Holy Spirit. You need to do something with it. Some of us have relationships with people that we, we, we purposely avoid. We do everything we can to, to not see them, to not talk to them, because there's been some issues along the way. And Jesus has called us in scripture. He says that if, if somebody has a problem with you, not even if you have a problem with somebody, Jesus says, if somebody has a problem with you, before you come to worship, lay your stuff at the altar, go and make that relationship right. Some of us have relationships that need forgiveness. But instead of forgiving, we've taken the shortcut of avoiding. That's how it happens in life. We have shortcuts all along the way. Weariness, shortcuts. The other thing that happens is we get options that we think are better options that pop up in our life. We're in the journey. We're running towards the goal. The goal is, is eternity in heaven and, and the path that God has called us to. But along the way, there's some things, and they're really not better options. They just look like better options from a, from a temporary standpoint. It's kind of like being in the desert and seeing an oasis, but it's a mirage. We go, man, that, that, that is good. And, and maybe something that seems very good, like a great career. It might have been a career choice that's tied to finances, and, and we've, we've kind of got out of the race. We've got out of what God has called us to do because so much of our time and our energy is not focused on the journey, but now it's focused on this career for our students. Maybe for some of us even. For our students, what I see comes to be one of the, the uh, obstacles in the journey, one of the things that seems like a better option tends to be the opposite sex. You see a teenager and man, they are, they are fired up for God's purposes in their life. And they are, they are chasing after the things of God. And they're excited about that. And then along comes this guy. And he's a good looking guy. And it's usually that way because the, the, it's usually girls that are like the spiritual leaders at this point. You know, our spiritual leader guys, and those guys are like diamonds. You know, they're like, so here comes this guy. And he leans into this girl. And he's like, you're so beautiful. And you are amazing. My world doesn't, my world can't go on without you. And this girl who's in the journey, this girl who's running it happens to guys too. This girl, all of a sudden, man, my heart starts feeling this connection to this guy. And he's telling me things about myself that I love to hear. And I, and I, I feel my, my love tank filling up and I feel worthwhile and I, I feel self. And all of a sudden, Jesus and, and the race that they're running, all of a sudden, the better option, and it's temporary, the better option causes that kid to peel off and all of a sudden they're out of the race. It happens. It happens all the time. Paul, the apostle, and this guy had plenty of obstacles. He had plenty of, of reasons to pull off of the race. I want to read you a little bit of his life of what he describes it. You don't have to turn there. I didn't put the passage of scripture up on the screen, but it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I just want to read you his journey, some of the things that he experienced. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-four, 24, he says this. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, last one. What that means is that five times he was tied to a pole and whipped with a cat of nine tails. Five different, not, not, not whipped five times, whipped 39 times, five different times. 
That's part of his journey. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, he was pushed off of a hill and people threw rocks on top of him to try to kill him. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, the Jews, danger from Gentiles, the non-Jews. That's, he just summed up everyone in the world right there. Danger from Jews and from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure. Every day I have the pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches that he planted. So here's a guy that's journey as he's chasing after Jesus and he's in the same spiritual journey where he goes, hey guys, my journey's been difficult. I don't know about yours. If he was saying to me, he'd go, Brad, I, don't, I know your journey's been difficult. I know, that, I know that, you, that you've dealt with a father that walked out and I know that you've dealt with, uh, you're a minister, so you've got the church world things. I know you've dealt with these things, but have you ever been shipwrecked? Have you ever been floating in the sea all day and all night? because of what God has called you to do in your journey? No, because it happened to me three times. <laughs> Not just one, three times. Have you ever, ever had somebody like hit you because of what God has called you to do? Because I've been beaten by multiple people with rods, not just their fists, three times. And you say, have you ever, have you ever been attacked? Because you've been in prison? Because I mean, I've been in prison multiple times. I wrote a lot of my letters. In fact, on my way to prison, several times they tied me to a stake and they took off my clothes and whipped me until my back was ripped to sheds. See, look at the scars and he can show them to me. So Paul, Paul would say, listen, I get weariness. You think when I was holding on to a, a piece of a ship out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, I wasn't going, God, I'm done. God, I'm worn out. Let's, let's do something different. He said, I've had temptation to take shortcuts. You think when God called me to things that I went, God, last time I went to that city, that didn't work. That, that was the place where they threw rocks at me. God, let's just, let's just send a letter to them this time and that's it. Shortcut. You think Paul along the way as a tent maker, he had a business on the side. You think there weren't, weren't better options? Because I'll tell you what was happening when he was being you know, beaten and when he was floating in the sea, he wasn't making tents. He wasn't making money. And somebody go, I got, I've got some better options over here. That, that, man, they are just way better. So that, yeah, he gets it, I'm sure. But what I want us to see, and we'll close out looking at what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and you can flip there. 1 Corinthians 9, because we're going to break some of these verses apart and talk about them. But that guy who's been shipwrecked and beaten, who's, who's had every excuse that we've ever even dreamed of and better reasons than we have, this is what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it, the prize. Every athletic athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This guy who had every opportunity to, to give into weariness and better options and, and take shortcuts says this. He says, and this is the verse we've been memorizing this series, I press on towards the prize 
He says, don't you know that everybody's in the race? There's a lot of runners, but only one person's gonna get it. You gotta run like you mean it. It's gotta matter to you. Now, in Paul's day, there was this thing called the Isthmian Games, similar to the Olympics. Isthmian Games happened every two years and people would come all from all over the Mediterranean rim. To, they'd come to uh, Greece and they would, they would run in these games and they had foot races and they had chariot races and javelin throws and discus. They had boxing, they had wrestling. They also had things like poetry, rate, poetry reading. Um, they had singing contests and it was all revolved around the worship of Poseidon, the God of the sea. But it was a big deal. It was like the Olympics. And so when, when Paul is talking about this to the people of Corinth, that's the imagery they're getting. They go immediately to the Isthmian Games. And one of the main differences between the Isthmian Games and our modern day Olympics is there was no such thing as the silver or the bronze. There was only one winner. There wasn't second place. They, they, they subscribe to the Ricky Bobby philosophy of sports. If you're not first, you're last. You know, Second place is first place for losers. That's how the Isthmian Games work. And so under that understanding, Paul says, hey, there's a lot of guys in the race. Everybody's running, but only one receives the prize. There's only one person that's getting the crown. You got to run like you mean it. And then he gives us this, these examples of them. I'll just kind of pull them out. You can read through these passages of scripture. I almost pull them out just word for word. He gives these examples of, of what the, the, the participant has to do. One of the things he says, he says they have to have self-control in all areas. And so now he's taking this analogy of the foot race, the Isthmian games, and he's saying, let's apply this to our life journey, to our spiritual journey. And he says, we've got to have self-control in all areas. And here's what Paul understood, and it's true of athletes. Your emotional makeup affects your physical response. Your intellectual, how you think about the competition affects how you perform in the competition. What Paul is helping us understand that, that we know deep inside, but, but he's helping bring, is our life is not really compartmentalized. We think it is. We think we've got our work life and our church life and our home life. And Paul says, no, when, when, when Jesus is in charge, you have your Jesus life that affects your work life and your home life and your church life and your friend life or whatever. There's not this compartmentalization. There, there, there's not the me on the weekend and the me at work and the me at church. No, there's just me. And, and, and all of those things, they all play into one, in, into one personhood of who you are. You can't compartmentalize. And he says, you've got to have self-control in all areas. Self-control in your physical life because your physical life and the things that you choose to do with your body, whether it be, Eating, drinking, sex, whatever it may be, has an effect on your spiritual life. Self-control in all things. Paul brings that to us. And, and an athlete gets that. As, as a mixed martial arts fan, you, I've seen it before. Watching two guys get into the octagon and, and they are going to go back to that boxing and wrestling type event. You, you can see guys. I saw a guy not too long ago that after in between rounds, fought first round, before the second round, got up and walked out of the cage. He was done. He hadn't been beaten. He didn't get knocked out. He didn't tap. But mentally, he was done. In his mental capacity, he, he, he just couldn't, he didn't want to do it anymore. No more will. Affected the physical competition. And Paul says his self-control in all things. He says this. He says, we don't run aimlessly. 
we run, we run with a purpose. You know, we just, if you're a sports fan, like I am, you know, NFL Combine just happened. If you're not a sports fan, the NFL Combine is when they bring the college seniors that have graduated, people that are, are, have made themselves eligible for the draft, and they come and they have to, they go and they lift, they bench press 225 pounds. They see how many times they can do it. They time them at the 40-yard dash because they've had, they've had their times. The coach has sent them in, but now this is the official thing, and, and all these NFL scouts are there. And these, these, these seniors, these college seniors, before they go to the combine, a lot of them start working with trainers. They're now out of the football season. Their job isn't to win football games. Their job is to run the fastest 40-yard dash they can possibly run. And so they hook up with some trainers for a couple of months and they, they go, hey, I need you to be able to, to, to carve off some hundreds of a second off of my time because that could be millions of dollars. So they get with these, these trainers so they can prepare for this combine. They're, they're focused on one thing, a 40-yard dash. They're not, the, the trainer doesn't get there and go, okay, hey, glad you showed up for this. We're gonna get you ready for the combine. Hey, why don't you, why don't you go run about five, six miles? Get, you know, that, that's aimlessly running. If they were preparing for a long distance run, that's what they do. But the, the, the trainer starts working them. I, I just care about how fast you go for 40 yards. And so every, every exercise we do, everything we do is focused on this. It's purposeful. It's intentional. It's not aimless. And Paul says in this journey of life, this spiritual journey, you gotta be focused. You don't just run aimlessly. You gotta know what you're doing, where you're going, why. He says this, he gives a lot of different things. He says, I'm not shadow boxing. I'm not boxing into the air. Because Paul says, I know shadows don't punch back, but the real world does. In my spiritual journey, I'm not shadow boxing because Satan is real. And Satan wants to steal and kill and destroy. I'm taking this seriously. I'm getting into the ring and, and there's gonna be some blood and there's gonna be some sweat because out there in the real world, there's gonna be blood and there's gonna be sweat. It's hard. And he says at the end, he says, I discipline my body. I discipline my life. He gives us these all in those couple of verses, a very serious picture of an athlete in training for these games, and he applies it to our spiritual journey. And I think what Paul would say to the Western church today is he'd gather us in close, and he'd say, lean in, I need, I'm gonna give you a little secret about the race. You guys have gotta start running like you mean it. You gotta start running like the prize at the end is real. You have to start running like eternity's at stake and the people that, whose lives that you're investing in, their eternity's at stake. And we're running for kingdom type things that really matter. And he gives us in this, this push of, of, I don't shadow box and we gotta discipline our bodies and we gotta, we gotta run seriously. He gives us a couple of, of reasons why. And the first one we just talked about, he says eternity's there. Eternity is, is what matters. It's the Sochi Olympics. These guys that, that, go to the, that went to the Winter Olympics and, and they trained and they competed, they gave up, they, they moved places to live so they could train for the Olympics. The guy that wins the gold medal and he gets this medal hung around his neck. Do you know what that gold medal is worth on the street? $566. It's what the gold's worth. Now, granted, it's a gold medal from the Olympics, so it probably has a higher street value, but the gold itself, $566. All of that work, all of the energy, and the prize was a $566 necklace, a moment of glory. And let me ask you this. Can you name me three Sochi Olympic gold medalists today? 
most of us in here probably couldn't even tell us what year the Sochi Olympics were. We know it was in the last couple. We're like, was it last year, two years ago? I remember they did that thing with the like digital projection. That was cool. But when was that? You know, it's perishable. Paul says, Paul says, why? And he, he, he says this, and this, we don't really get this. He says, they do it to receive a perishable wreath. When you won the race, I got a picture of one that would be similar. You got a, a crown of leaves. That, I mean, that was it. You, you got something out of the garden. Congratulations. There's your prize. And Paul says, you know what happens to that within the month? It dies. It rots. It goes away. And we, with these athletes, they, they run this race and they do that for this perishable crown that doesn't last, but we're in for something that's imperishable. We're in it for eternity. We're in it for the kingdom of God. If these athletes run and they discipline themselves and they run like they mean it for a crown that came out of the garden, how much more should we who've been redeemed by the king of the universe, our lives have been bought with the blood of his son and we have eternity sealed, We've got a, a mansion in heaven. We've got the Holy Spirit in our lives right now to help us have the abundant life, life overflowing. How much more should we run this race like we mean it? That's a no-brainer. That's what Paul's trying to get us to see. So he says, why do all these things? One, because it's eternal. And two, I run like this and I train like this because I don't want to be disqualified. And a guy, it was a friend of mine, acquaintance. We weren't very close, so I don't know all the details. He was a pastor, uh, not a head pastor. He was a, a minister of education, but he's a pastor at his church, taught at a university, shaping young minds, shaping and leading a church. And he lost all of his ministry because one day he went out to the park to solicit a prostitute and found a police officer. And, and in a moment, disqualified from his ministry. In a moment, disqualified from his testimony. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't do you real well when your neighbors have heard how much Jesus means to you and that Jesus is the most important thing in your life and then you're in jail for soliciting a prostitute. That, that it, testimony struggles. Now I'm saying you can't be redeemed from that. I'm not saying God's great. I'm not saying that. But Paul says, I don't want to be disqualified. And you know what? That didn't happen accidentally. He wasn't just walking through the park one day, never having thought about it, never having made decisions. He got in there, just walked through the park and, and saw somebody and went, oh, hey, you know, I wonder, I've got a hundred bucks. I wonder if they would. No. He'd quit being intentional. He'd quit practicing self-control in all areas. He'd quit fighting the good fight. He got off focus from where the race ended. And it wasn't a one-time thing. It was a bunch of small things that ended in disqualification. And Paul says, I don't want that. I don't want to be disqualified. I want to run this race and I want to finish well. So what do we do? I want to give you two things. Two things to work on with your family. Two things to think through this week. And here's the first thing. And this is going to take some work. But I'm going to ask you to think through building a training plan. Building a spiritual training plan for you Maybe as a family, sit down and, and think about what this looks like. I've got a friend that's about to start his own business. And he's not just walking into it going, okay, I think I'll buy some of this and I'll buy some of that. He's got a business plan. He's got, he got a, an idea of what's going to happen. Well, if we're going to train, 
We got to have a plan. Also, you know, nobody shows up to, to train for whatever, for basketball, football, anything, a race. Nobody walks it without a plan. They get a train and train. Here's what we're going to do. We've got, we've got six months until the race or six months until the fight. Or we've got a week until the game. Here's the plan for the week. And, and it's exercising and it's practicing and it's watching film and, it, and it's doing things over and over again to hone muscles and to hone responses so that our, our body does what it's supposed to do. When that moment comes, there's this plan. But spiritually, for a lot of us, our plan is if we can make it to church this week, we'll go. I mean, that's a terrible spiritual plan. I don't even know if terrible describes how terrible that really is. I mean, if that's what we've got, is that a good thing? Absolutely. But if that's, if that's the sum total of our plan in, in this race that we're running towards eternity, in this race that we're running with our kids alongside to go, hey, we'll make it if we can. But you know what? There might be something that pops up, a quote unquote better option, what we talked about earlier. We'll probably take that. So I'm gonna ask you to do this. This is, this hard, this is gonna be hard work. It's like homework. Start writing out a plan for you, for your family. Just do one for, just do it for March. Just for March. Don't, don't worry about the 10-year the plan, the five-year plan. You don't have to worry about the 2015 plan. Just Mar what do we want to see happen spiritually in March? Now, we can't control that. We can't control the Holy Spirit and say, God, this is what you're going to do. And at the end of March, I'm going to look like this. But we can say, God, I'm going to jump into the river in which the river's flowing, where your spirit's moving, and, and I'm going to go where you go. But God, here's what we think is going to happen. Here's what I hope to, to see. Write out that plan and, and then break it down. Like if, if it is being involved in church or a small group, then say, hey, we're gonna be there three out of four Sundays. If you go, hey, I'm gonna read the Bible all the way through this year. Now don't, do, don't try that in March. Uh, I'm gonna read the Bible all the way through in a year. What you need, you need to back that down and put it into smaller bite-sized pieces. That's what a plan does. And, and it comes back and you might go, wow, I said, I want to read the Bible through in a year. I just realized that I have to read 35 chapters a week to do that. I don't know how many it is, but I mean, it's a lot. And you might go, okay, maybe I'm going to read the Old Testament this year and the New Testament next. I don't, but you, once you start bringing it down to bite-sized pieces of this plan, then you can start working it. What, what do you want spiritually? And, and what can you do to get there? Our eighth graders through seniors have an opportunity to do leadership track. Every September, we, we kind of push it. And this year, we have about 50 students doing it. You know, the way that developed, I'll give you the short story, not the long. The way that developed, we sat down and said, what does a student leader out of this youth ministry look like? And that's when we came to the realization, you know what, we're not even aiming for 18, we're aiming for 25. What does a 25-year-old leader look like if we have 13 to 18 to invest in them? When they're going to go to college, we'll lose them from that point. Somebody else got to pick up the, the baton and run. What does a leader look like? We put that on paper and then we built this plan, which is what the leadership track is, this plan to get them there. And we said, a, a, a leader, a student leader, they ought to know the word of God. So we asked them to memorize 20 verses during the year. We said, they ought, they ought, to, they ought to be reading the word of God. So we broke out the Bible from eighth grade, 12th grade. If they did it all, they would read the Bible all the way through before they graduate high school. We said, hey, they need, they need accountability. So we asked them to get accountability. We said, they need adults in their life to coach them along the way. So we, we ask them to have a mentor, meet with them twice a week. We, we believe that leaders at 25, leaders, and I say this, I say this to my eight-year-old, my four-year-old all the time, leaders are readers. My four-year-old can't read, but you know, she hears it all the time. Leaders are, because we're out there trying to, to stay ahead of culture and learn from people that went before us so that God can use us to influence and change the world. So we put together a reading list. 
and said, hey, eighth grade, it starts here. It's pretty simple. 12th grade, you're reading adult leadership books. Four years, the goal, because we want to move you. That's the plan. Now, a kid might come to me and go, that plan doesn't work for me. And what I'd say is, God bless, let's make your own plan. Because every kid's unique and every kid's different. Leadership track's not gonna work for some, but for some, it at least gets them thinking and moving on this spiritual plan. But you can have one for yourself. You can have one for your family and start moving towards the finish line. Start that plan. And here's the second thing. You gotta look at exactly how I worded it. I don't remember how I did. Prepare ahead of time for the difficult times. You're gonna get weary. If you don't think you're gonna get weary, you're fooling yourself. You're gonna wrestle with better options. They're gonna be temporary things, that oasis in the desert that you go, man, this looks better. I'm just gonna detour. It's going to come, I promise you. If you're going to be tempted to go off course, if you're not tempted to go off course and get out of the race, my, what I'd suggest you do is do some, some real honest, hard looking about where you're at spiritually. Because the only person, people that I know that the, the devil's not messing with are people that are right where the devil wants them. When you start walking with Jesus, you start getting on the race, he's gonna start attacking. He's gonna, his job, again, is to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what Jesus said. So it's going to happen. You're going to have tension in your home. You're going to have tension in your marriage. You're going to have tension at work. The journey is gonna be difficult. There's gonna be times where God is silent. All of those things are going to happen. That's when we hunker down and push forward like an athlete who's training. But prepare, no, now it's coming. Set some checkpoints. Get some race partners we talked about a few weeks ago, along the way that you can look at and say, hey, you know what? I'm gonna be very honest with you. I, I'm just really not feeling Jesus this week. Let me be really honest with you. For the last two months, I mean, I even really felt like Jesus I've even heard from. I don't wanna go to church. And, and you've got this race partner to encourage you on when the weariness sets in. Get a plan and prepare for the, for the tough times. Guy told a story about his grandnephew. He was going to be in a wedding. Aunt was, gonna, was getting married, and they, they had a five-year-old, and they were asking this five-year-old to be the, the ring bearer. So he had a big job. He's got to walk down the aisle, and, and as a five-year-old boy walking down the aisle and something that's supposed to be formal, exciting, there was a little bit of, of fear among some of the family members of what, how this might actually turn out. You might have been there before. And so the grandmother had this idea. And she told the, the five-year-old, she said, well, you know what I'm gonna do? Because this is an important day. I'm gonna give a prize away to the person who does their job best. And the five-year-old boy like looked up and started thinking there's carrot, you know, at the end of the stick. Wedding started, everything's going well. Five-year-old boy's got the ring. He comes walking down, he's doing well. He's slow, he, you can tell he's thinking about it. He gets down, does everything right and he nails it. Wedding goes off and it's without a flaw. And afterwards, the grandmother comes over to the five-year-old and she says, she says, honey, I'm gonna tell you what, you did so good, you've won the prize. She gave him whatever she gave him. And five-year-old, in honesty, just looked back at his grandmother and he said, I was pretty sure I had won it, but when Aunt Dana came out in that white dress and the horn started blowing, I thought she might steal it from me. <laughs> but he finished strong. There was a prize at the end and there is a prize that awaits us. Run like you mean it. Take your family and run like you mean it. One of the things I'm gonna say, if, 
I've had to think through, I don't do this normally, but I've had to think through what I'm going to say at the 11 o'clock service because I'm not sure that as I baptize my own child, I'm going to be able to speak intelligible words. I'm a little nervous about that. And she's already told me, Dad, you're probably going to cry, and I'm going to laugh at you. Like, Thanks, because I get to hold you under. So thinking through what's saying. So if you're going, which I hope you will, you'll, but, but the point is the same. Today for our family doesn't mark the beginning. Baptism, her salvation two weeks ago yesterday didn't mark the beginning. We've been in this journey as a family with her for nine years. She's eight, so do the math. Since she was in her mother's womb. When she was in a crib, I would walk and, at night, not always, but, but I tried to on a regular basis go and just lay my hands on the door frame of her room and just pray over her for two or three minutes before I went to bed. As a family, we're doing, and we're, we're figuring it out. Like, we're not real good. We're, we're figuring out what it looks like discipleship in the home. I had this great idea this week of Emerson loves Frozen, you know, obviously, because she's four. And I found this, this three-part devotional through the, about Frozen that ties the scripture to it. And as soon as we did the first one, my eight-year-old sat there with her hand over her and said, I hate Frozen. So we just kept going, trying to figure it out. So we're doing session two tonight. And I told Rayleigh, I said, hey, since you're too big for Frozen, here's devotional number three. You're going to lead it on Monday night. And all of a sudden she's like, yeah, we're figuring those things out. That wasn't the plan. I just had to think of something because I couldn't have my eight-year-old during you know, prayer time going, I hate Frozen, I hate Frozen, because that was not going to be race-worthy. You know what I'm saying? But the journey's been going for nine years. Baptism Day isn't the end. It isn't, whew, saved. Some of us feel that way. Whew, if I can just get them to Jesus. <laughs> then, then we, all right, Jesus, there you are, got them there. Whew. Whatever happens now... Pregnant at 14, hooked on heroin. I got him to Jesus. It's still going to keep going. It's, this, it's a long race. It's a long journey. And as a family, individually, yes, but as a family, we've got to run like we mean it. I'm going to pray for us, and then if we have time to talk, which I, <coughs> do we? Then we're going to let you all talk about something. God.